0: This is Real Estate Rookie episode 248.
1: So you have to kind of weigh the pros and cons of, you know, the, the risks associated with keeping it in your personal name versus the, the cost of doing it under the LLC.
0: And what you just said, I think, is one of the most like missed expenses on a line item when people are analyzing a deal. Especially if it's your first deal, you are putting it into an LLC. I don't see a lot of people accounting for those fees that you just said of setting up an LLC that's going to eat into your cash flow, maintaining the LLC. It's only $25 in New York 25? State. $25? <laughs> Every year for the annual Jeez. filing fee. My name is Ashley Kerr, and I am live with my co-host, Tony Robinson.
1: And welcome to the Real Estate Ricky podcast, where every week, twice a week, we bring you the inspiration, motivation, and stories you need to hear to kickstart your investing journey. And I want to start today's episode by shouting out Milkman2333. Uh, Milkman left us a five star review on Apple Podcasts and said, I owe everything to this podcast. What an amazing show, easy to listen to, and I love when they give updates on themselves. Started listening in May of 2020, and because of them, I had the courage to buy in November 2020. January 21 and September 2021. Trust me and listen. Next up for me is partnership with a silent partner. Thanks, Tony and Ashley. I owe it all to you guys. Well, Milkman, we appreciate that. And, you know, honestly, that's why we do what we do, right? We love hearing stories just like that. So if you haven't yet left us a five-star or honest, I should say, rating and review on whatever platform it is you're listening to, Do yourself a favor, do us a favor, and and leave them for us.
0: And that's why me and Tony are geeking out, because tonight we are going to a meetup. We are are going to get to hear so many inspiring stories from... Rookie investors and just experienced investors, or the motivation and excitement of somebody who's trying to get started in real estate and attends this networking event.
2: Yeah,
1: it's you know it's so crazy. Like as much joy as I get from you know buying the next property and mm-hmm. you know getting that listing live and you know seeing the returns come in, it it's it's a different level of fulfillment when I read stories like that and hear people in the rookie audience who say, you know, I was afraid, I was confused, I was lost, I didn't know where to start, and I started yeah. listening to the podcast, and now I. Have have one deal, two deals, five deals, and we hear this, these same stories over and over and over again. And it's just such a crazy and humbling kind of position for us to be in.
0: Well. Tell everyone about that text that you were telling us about this morning that you got about the person who bought the short term rental.
1: Yeah. So, Olivia Tati, uh, she, she sent me a text over the weekend and um, she said, Tony, thank you so much for your inspiration, for your your guidance. Um, she just taken her first listing live and she was like, within like the first couple of weeks, our mortgage is covered for like the next couple of months, right? And they just took the listing live. So, hearing stories like that, you know, it, it's, it's crazy. It makes it all worth
0: it. Okay. Well, today we're going to go over uh, four rookie reply questions. We are going to you talk about LLCs. Mm-hmm. Um, putting properties into your personal name and what are some of the those differences and, you know, what you should consider when deciding to do that. Then we're also going to talk about uh, financing options. Um, we have uh, Lisa who gives us a scenario of what her current financial situation is. And we give her some ideas as to how she can tap into some money to buy her first investment property.
1: Yeah. And then we also kind of finish off by talking about what to do at that final stage of your escrow period. Like are there, what, What are those things you should be looking for to make sure you're not stepping into a bad deal?
2: So overall, lots of good questions. Yeah. Remember when you had to pay to get a leads phone number? It was like the dark ages until Deal Machine made skip tracing a thing of the past. Now, with your Deal Machine plan, you'll get unlimited access to phone numbers and contact information for no extra cost. That's right. Get high quality, reliable information trusted by leading financial institutions, all fully compliant with the federal do not call list. transform your lead generation and deal making strategies with deal machine sign up today and start exploring the unlimited possibilities at dealmachine.com slash bP remember when you had to pay to get a leads phone number it was like the dark ages until deal machine made skip tracing a thing of the past now with your deal machine plan you'll get unlimited access to phone numbers and contact information for no extra cost that's right get
3: Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. All right, so let's get into our
1: first question, which comes from Evan Yan. And Evan's question is What are the best questions to ask a seller during the final walkthrough? Uh, so I can kind of share my experience first. I don't think I've even really seen most of the sellers that I bought my properties from. Um, I'm typically not there during the inspections. Um, if it's a rehab, I, I typically will walk with my my re, with with like my crew. Um, but if it's just like a typical property that we're buying, it's short term, so I'm almost never there as a during the property inspection. So I don't really ask the seller any questions. What I do use is information from the property inspection report to kind of inform my decisions around like not even what I need to ask the seller, but like what are the things I need to follow up on? So like for example, we have a property under contract right now and uh, we had our first inspection come back and there were, there were a lot of question marks. Some of the things that came out of that are, um, do we need to replace the septic? Like the uh, property inspector couldn't get access to the septic tank. It's an older property. We wanna know what the condition of that is. So we need to follow up with that. Um, there's no working HVAC system. So now we need to go and look at, okay, what, what are we doing to quote out new HVAC? Um, there's a pool in the backyard that's been filled with dirt. Um, what is it going to cost for us to go out and get that pool brought back to life? Um, so I think the property inspection honestly is going to give you a lot of the questions that you need to ask yourself when it comes to purchasing this property what do you think ash
0: yeah and to kind of get technical when i hear the word final walkthrough mm. i think of you're about you're ready to close the next day and you're mm. doing one final walkthrough of the property so i don't know if that's what they mean or just any kind of walkthrough of the property after you've gotten it under contract mm. but i typically don't see a lot of the sellers either doing mm. those processes even if i am going to the property myself, a lot of times the sellers aren't there. So if it's an off-market deal, it most likely is the seller taking you through the property again. But um, I would say you can get a lot of information just from listening and not even asking questions from the seller. But everything they say anyways, make sure you're verifying that information too. So just some typical things that you can ask about the property if you did do an inspection, what are, you know, ask them about these issues, these problems that came up, they have any more information about it. Um, Are there any things, any kind of um, routine maintenance that they currently do on the property that you should be aware of? And then um, just maybe the history of the property too, finding out things like that. But as far as if it's the final walkthrough, it's the day before closing, um, I don't see a lot of questions that you could ask because you're already forced to close. Yeah, in the property.
1: You're pretty close. <laughs> um, one thing I will add is sometimes you do get value by talking to the tenants. Um, yes. So that property that we did walk yesterday, that the owner wasn't there, but the tenant was there. And she gave up some information around like, you know, some deferred maintenance and things that she had noticed about the property. So, you know, sometimes if you talk to the tenant at the property, they can give you maybe more information than even the the actual owners can.
0: Yeah. I love when tenants are home and I see a property. I feel very uncomfortable that I'm walking through because I do feel a lot of tenants. It's a hard situation for them Mm -hmm. not knowing who's going to buy it what's going to happen are they going to have to move and that can be very uncomfortable coming in as a potential buyer and just to being that situation. So, um, but I do think you can get tons of information from the tenant. And what I do too, is I ask the seller once, once I have it under contract, if I can send in a estoppel agreement to the tenants. And this basically is a form that the tenants are going to fill out with their contact information. And then, um, what the terms of their lease agreement are, if they own any of the appliances, what utilities they pay, do they have any pets just all the information about them that would typically be on a rental application or be in their lease agreement. And then I also compare that to either what the owner, the seller had said, or what is in the lease agreement. Um, another thing I asked too is what are repairs and maintenance that need to be done to the property? And you usually hear an earful of repairs that, you know, actually need to be made or just improvements that they would like seen done to the property too.
1: So Evan, hopefully that helps answer the question for you. But again, um, everything we shared, I think is what you want to lean on. But to me, tenants, inspection reports, Mm -hmm. that's where you're going to get a lot of golden information.
0: Okay. Next up. Oh, you know what? Actually, before we go to the next one, I'm going to say one more thing about that information on the property. The last thing I will say is Google the address of the property. That's a great idea. Because I had a wholesaler try to sell me a property and I, you know what? I just knew that I had seen that property somewhere and the address of it looked so familiar so I googled it and it had been a math meth lab. I remember it being in the news that they had busted this house and when you cook meth in a property, you have to do some kind of remediation to make it safe from all the chemicals in there. So just googling a property's address can give you information on the property too. Yeah, just
1: like imagine like going to list that property for rent. And like you, you thought you know one two three Main Street, and yeah. then potential tenants type in one two three Main Street, and yeah. the first thing that pops up is like meth house. Yeah, <laughs> um, you'd want to a know about that before the tenants, and b be able mm-hmm. to say like. I know we took care of it. Here's what we did. It's, you know, it's like brand new X, Y, Z. And it was
0: a wholesaler trying to sell it. So the fact the wholesaler hadn't even Googled the address and was trying to, you know, sell the property to somebody else. Um, he did not know anything about that and I don't think he was ever able to get rid of that property property. probably fell out of contract. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Okay. The next question is from Caitlin Latour question for anyone with experience with midsize multi-commercial. Is it appropriate to ask the listing agent for financials upfront, like before even seeing the property? Or is that information only disclosed during due diligence period? In other words, how much information can I ask for upfront? I'd love to base analysis on actuals, trying to determine what is customary so I can ask the best questions and make the best impression with the seller. Thanks all. So I actually did this today. Someone sent me a campground for sale and immediately... I emailed requesting the financials on the property and then said, I would like to review those before I go and see the property because I think there's so much more information you gather from the numbers on the property that you can see kind of an idea of, okay, this is where it makes sense. Is it even worth me going to the property to look at it? Um, and kind of doing some due diligence uh, beforehand.
1: Yeah, I think in the commercial space, most brokers almost expect potential buyers to request financial information. Usually you will have to submit or, or sign some kind of like non-disclosure agreement or NDA. Um, but as soon as you sign that, most brokers will send you um, you know, a trailing 12 for like, hey, here's a property over the last 12, 12 months. Um, they might send you tax returns, just anything they have, P&Ls um, regarding the property and the owner's financials. Um, because yeah, for a commercial property, you almost, do need that information to be able to even make a an informed offer around what you're willing to pay for. Because if you think it's doing X, but in reality, it's doing Y, um, when you go to purchase that property, get debt, whatever it is, it's going to be far more difficult for you. So I think that is common for commercial. Yeah,
0: and especially if there's leases on the property too, you want to get copies of the leases and know what the rent is now on the property and how long of a term you're going to be stuck with that rental income. Because you could you could know projections that the market rent for this size unit is X amount, but it could be way undervalued and they still have 12 more months left on their lease and you're going to have to carry that property Along those 12 months at that mm. lower rental income, which would vastly um, decrease your cash flow uh, over that time, so completely appropriate. And I highly recommend asking for the financials upfront. I have had times where the agent has said they don't really have financials. <laughs> you know, it's a mom and pop self storage facility where sure. they go there the first Sunday of the month, collect <laughs> you know the rent in cash. But that gives you actually more leverage. leverage. So that's where you go to the realtor. Well, are they um, going to be accepting seller financing offers since this would be a hard property for a bank to finance with no financials and a track record? Yeah.
1: And just to like break down what Ashley's saying, like most commercial lenders, when they're lending on self storage, mm-hmm. large apartment complexes, whatever it is, they're not looking at Ashley and Tony as the borrowers mm-hmm. to say, will we give you this debt? What they're looking at oh. is, what is the current and historical performance of that property? And can the performance support the debt that we're going to give you guys? So we ran into this issue a lot as we were looking for hotels this past year to try and purchase, is that a lot of them were small mom and pops that had terrible books or no books whatsoever. And because of that, most banks weren't willing to lend on those properties. Banks want to see stabilized assets. But to your point, it did give us leverage because we got multiple seller financed offers um, that sellers were willing to entertain because they knew that that was the only way they were going to sell that property.
0: So Ooh. yeah, to kind of end that out is to it's completely appropriate to ask for those kind of things. Um, the as much as you, information as you want before you're even under contract, if that's what you need to run your numbers, because you don't want to be stuck estimating something that you could verify before you make that offer.:
3: This show is sponsored by Airbnb. can secure the best coverage at the best price to protect your properties. Discover how Steadily can save you both time and money on your rental property insurance. Visit Steadily.com for a commitment-free quote tailored to your needs today. When BiggerPockets started podcasting, no
1: one thought we needed a store, but then books, so many books, best-selling books, rookie books, partnership books. We needed the best real estate bookstore ever, so we chose Shopify. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. bookstore. So sign up for a $1 per month trial at shopify.com slash BP rookie, all lowercase. Again, go to shopify.com slash BP rookie now to grow your business. No matter what stage you're in shopify.com slash BP rookie. Hiring, your search is over. Really, there's no need to search. Match instead with Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates super fast. Ditch the busy work, use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging to hire top talent faster. Speaking of top talent, 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites. But why do I love Indeed? Because I'm busy and scrolling through 300 resumes is not helping my business grow. It's actually making it slow. With Indeed, I can hire faster and know I'm getting someone who can do the job. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to post your jobs with more visibility at Indeed.com rookie. Just go to Indeed.com rookie right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Indeed.com rookie. Need to hire, you need indeed. All right, well, let's jump into the next question. This one comes from Cade Bigelow. Cade says, I'm super new to this. I just found out about bigger pockets a few weeks ago, but what is the importance of putting your home under an LLC instead of your personal name? is that something you should do uh, that everyone should do or only in certain situations? So Ash and I both kind of come from different ends of the spectrum where almost none of my long-term holds are under my personal or are under my LLC. And is on the opposite end where almost all of yours are under LLCs. Yeah. Right. So I'll kind of talk about it from my perspective of why I didn't. And then Ashley can talk about maybe why, why you okay. did go that way um, for us. A lot of the, the debts that we were using, uh, didn't allow us to purchase it using a, um, an LLC. We got personal debt, which meant we had to hold those titles in our personal names. Um, now we could have gone back and, um, you know, updated those loans. Um, I'm sorry, updated the titles on those properties after we closed. to change ownership from our personal names to our LLC and then kept the debt on our personal names. We just haven't done that. Um, instead what we opted to do was to get an umbrella policy. Um, so we have, uh, debt titles in our personal names then we have this umbrella policy that gives us that additional layer of protection in addition to our like our home insurance um so for us what was more important was getting the the most favorable debt terms and in order to get that we had to under our personal personal names
0: yeah for my properties when i first started out investing i wanted that nice 30 year fixed <laughs> you know low interest rate so i did a lot of the rentals that i owned myself in my personal name Then every time I have a partner, I put that partner into an LLC. So any properties we buy together go into that LLC with partner A. Anything I buy with partner B goes into that LLC together. Um, And then we typically get commercial financing on those properties. I have found one bank that would lend me on the residential side for um, putting a property into an LLC. It was not a 30-year fix, but it was a 25-year fix but at the time, interest rates were around like four and a half percent. If I would have done it in my personal name, and they charge us seven point three seven five percent, so it almost would have been better off going to the commercial side and getting it fixed for five years to have that that lower interest rate. But um, you know, once again, the mistakes you make as a rookie investor. So typically mine are in an LLC for the liability protection, Um, especially with having partners. I never recommend that you go on title in your personal name with somebody else in their personal name too. Uh, So I like having that liability protection is the biggest thing why my properties are in an LLC. And then I'm mostly doing commercial lending at this point.
1: I think the other thing to consider too, Kate, is like the additional cost comes a- along with LLCs mm-hmm. because in California, um, I don't know. I think our attorney charges like twelve hundred bucks. So like just file all the paperwork, set everything up, and then every year it's like eight hundred dollars to just to maintain the LLC. You have your additional tax returns you have to file every year for your LLC. Your QuickBooks subscriptions for each LLC. The bookkeeping becomes a little bit more expensive because there's multiple files that your bookkeepers are working with. So there definitely is an additional cost um, to having multiple LLCs. LLC. So you have to kind of weigh the pros and cons of, you know, the, the risks associated with keeping it in your personal name versus the the cost of doing it under the LLC.
0: And you can also get umbrella insurance if you do have it in your personal name. And that's what I did was get an umbrella insurance policy that basically on top of your, um, landlord policy that covers the rental you have another higher coverage so that if you are sued there's more money that the insurance company would pay out to protect you in a lawsuit and what you just said i think is one of the most like missed expenses on a line item when people are analyzing a deal especially if it's your first deal you are putting it into an llc I don't see a lot of people accounting for those fees that you just said of setting up an LLC that's going to eat into your cash flow. Maintaining the LLC, it's only twenty five dollars in New York. Twenty five <laughs> every year for the annual Jeez. filing fee. but Eight hundred
1: in California. It's
0: about eight hundred dollars to start it, yeah. the the LLC with total fees. But with um to do the every year, it's only twenty five dollars wow. per an LLC. But yeah, if you have that eight hundred dollars, that's a Huge chunk of your cash flow potentially to have that. And I don't think a lot of people run that, the cost of that business. And then, of course, as you grow your portfolio, you can spread that number out among your units if they're all in that same LLC, but definitely something to think about too, for sure.
1: Kate, I I think my last piece of advice would be if having this LLC set up is the only thing that's preventing you from submitting offers, just just put the offers in, Mm -hmm. right? You can always go back and adjust title later down the road. If you find a lender that says, hey, you need an LLC set up to get this kind of debt, then handle that during your escrow period. But I think what's more important for you, Kate, is getting those offers in, finding that first deal and, and just getting started.
0: Okay. So our next question is from Lisa Ann. What is the best way to determine lending when you have no cash down? All my money is invested in stocks right now. I have equity in my home and decent credit. Do you borrow from your own home, get private lending, then refinance? Is there anything that prohibits you from buying more properties afterwards? Do you apply in your own name or create an LLC? What is the best resource to research options in your state? Thank you. So the first thing that I think of when I see this is that she has money invested in stocks. So if those are not in a retirement account and they're just in a brokerage account, then you are able to go and get a line of credit against those stocks. So instead of having your home as collateral, if you went and put a line of credit on that or a mortgage on that, your stocks are actually going to be the collateral. So. There are limits, like you have to have at least over $100,000 in value, I believe. And it probably differs on you know what bank you go with to do this, but there are limitations on it. But it's usually a very low interest rate because your collateral is so liquid, where if you do not repay your debt... The bank isn't foreclosing on a property and then having to resell it. They're basically just cashing out your stocks and taking that money and running. So there's a lot less risk for them. And that way you're getting a better interest rate. So I would say that would be your first option is getting a line of credit against your stocks. Um, people, you may have heard people do this with their 401k where they get, um, they take a loan from their 401k. The difference is when you're doing the line of credit against your stocks is your stocks are still invested. You're not touching them. So you still have, you know, that kind of separate income accumulating over there and you're not pulling it out where when you take a loan from your 401k, you're actually drawing the money out of the stock market. To borrow from it and then you're repaying it back. Good side, you're paying yourself back the interest and in putting it back into your 401k. But you're losing that investment strategy. And I always love to diversify.
1: <laughs> yeah, Those two really great points, Ashley. On the on the line of credit side, um, you, you're exactly right. Like I have a line of credit with E Trade, and we use that to fund some of our real estate stuff. And um, like literally, like if you're like even, even as the market fluctuates, right? Like if they see that your, your stock portfolio starts to decrease to a certain level, they won't even ask you, they'll just sell your stocks and they'll recoup whatever funds they need. So that, that is one of the, not risks, but you know, it's really how the bank mitigates their risk when they're lending this money to you. But like you said, the interest rates are so incredibly low on that Mm -hmm. stuff. It's almost like free money. Um, and we use that to fund, I think two of our initial deals when we were out in, uh, out in Louisiana and the 401k piece yeah, it sucks that you're pulling your money out and you're not gaining on that, but it is also better than taking those penalties and like just pulling that cash out. So a lot of times when people ask me like, Hey, should I cash on my 401k? I was like, I mean, it's an option, but if you can get a loan, you know, even if you can't access all of that capital, maybe if it's some of that Mm -hmm. capital, at least you're not paying those penalties on pulling that money out and you're paying yourself back. So it's still going to grow.
0: And then the next question is, um, is there anything that prohibits you from buying more properties afterwards? So she had kind of talked about, you know, if she did this line of credit. Um, so the only thing that would happen is depending what path she chooses, whether it's refinancing or primary, is that your debt to income would be affected because you have now taken out uh, a loan on the property and you now have that debt repayment so that would affect your debt to income. So you would just have to look at what would that repayment amount be? What is your income? And would you stay under the bank's requirement, the threshold? Do you know off the top of your head what the requirement is right now for a DTI for most banks? No,
1: I haven't applied for a loan in a little while. So yeah, me either. It's just on the sure. commercial
0: yeah. side, but they don't, they don't ask. Yeah.
1: Um, oh. the, the only other thing that I'd, I'd add there too, right, when we're thinking about like, you know, kind of how to set this up. You're talking about lines of credit, uh, Lisa, and and in my mind, I think the best way to leverage a line of credit is if you're doing some kind of burr. So if you're buying a, a distressed property, you're rehabbing it, and then you're refinancing to input some kind of long-term fixed debt. Um, because like, say that you say that you do this with just like a, a traditional line of credit, and you go out and you buy a turnkey property, now your capital that you invest in into that turnkey deal is essentially stuck in that property for who knows how long. And most lines of credit aren't infinitely open, right? Okay. Um, so they, at some point you have to pay them back and it could just get into your cash flows way. So in my mind, the ideal way to do it is you take your, your line of credit or, or whatever it is you're doing, use that to buy a distressed asset, rehab it, fix it up, put in some long-term fixed debt, repay yourself and then pay down that line of credit. And now you can recycle that line over and over again.
0: Yeah, I just looked it up. I, according to Google, the um, on average, lenders like to see a 43% debt income or less. Yeah.
1: So that means that say you make a thousand bucks a month, your debt obligation should be $430 or less. So if you're at 431 or higher, that's where banks start to have some some concern.
0: Okay. And then we kind of already touched on this. Do you apply in your home name or create an LLC on the last question? Mm -hmm. Um, So I'd refer back to that one and see which one kind of fits for you. Um, And then what is the best resource to research options in your state? So I think all of the questions that were asked can kind of be general over every state, that there's not really state specific on types of ways or which strategy you should go to pull money out of your brokerage or your investments.
1: I think the last thing, and Lisa didn't even really ask this, but if you find a killer deal, uh, Lisa, and say so you don't have the capital to take it down and maybe some of these more creative uh, options aren't working for you, then find a partner, mm-hmm. right? And that's what Ash and I did when we have, we found these amazing deals at the beginning of our real estate deals. We didn't have the capital to take it down. We found a partner. Yeah. Um, so look for someone in your network that maybe has an interest in investing in real estate, but doesn't have the time, desire, or ability to do it themselves, but they have the capital.
0: Okay. Well, you guys, thank you so much for listening to this week's Rookie Reply. I'm Ashley at Wealth From Rentals, and he's Tony at Tony J. Robinson. Make sure you guys check us out on YouTube and subscribe to The Real Estate Rookie and leave us a review on your favorite podcast platform. We'll be back on Wednesday with a guest.